Okay, good afternoon, everyone. Uh, we're gonna start this event, uh, this first uh, event of uh, this uh, this new year, academic year. Uh, we'll uh, uh, we will be hosting eight uh, conferences uh, of this uh, uh, Middle East 101 series. Uh, it's a great pleasure and quite an excitement uh, to have this uh, series, which is the first. A hybrid uh, one that uh, we will be launching uh, since uh, the pandemic started. Uh, we have people uh, in the auditorium as well as on Zoom. I hope uh, that uh, those that are watching us uh, on Zoom can uh, hear me fine. Uh, except if there are some echo, I'll uh, stand down. Uh, uh, so we will start with a, a big question and probably the, the question which will be driving most of our discussion for this semester, which is the developments in the Middle East and why uh, Singapore should care about it. Uh, to answer this question, uh, our executive uh, director uh, will uh, provide uh, insights uh, and probably food for thought uh, today. Uh, let me say a few words on Michel Theo, who's, uh, as I said, our executive uh, uh, director. Michel has been uh, uh, combining experiences in her career, both in government and in the private sector. Uh, I could not uh, give the list of all her assignments uh, at the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, but let me uh, just mention that she's been probably all around the world, uh, in Europe, uh, North, uh, North America, uh, uh, Australia, where she was the, the High Commissioner for uh, Singapore in Canberra, uh, and most importantly, maybe for our discussion today in the Middle East uh, as well. In addition to that, she's been, as I said, in the private sector uh, too, uh, uh, with responsibilities including, uh, for instance, with IBM, where she was posted both uh, for IBM in Singapore and IBM ASEAN. Uh, and she's been uh, with the Middle East Institute uh, now for, I, I believe, seven, seven years. Uh, so without further ado, I will uh, now uh, leave the floor uh, to you, Michelle. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you very much, Jean-Luc. So let me just welcome uh, everyone to our 2022 series. Uh, and I want to thank all of you who have joined us, those of you who have come here in person to join us today. And then there are those who are coming online. Thank you very much. As Jean-Luc said, uh, this series marks our transition to hybrid events. And the fact that uh, some of you have actually trekked all the way to the Middle East Institute at Heng Wei Kang Terrace, is, it's very encouraging and I thank you all for that. Let's talk a little bit about uh, what I wanted to talk about today. We talk, I, you know, my title was Developments in the Middle East and Why Should Singapore Care? First, let me talk about how the Middle East is perceived. When I was doing the preparations for this opening statement, I thought, okay, let me go and take a look at a few websites, see what the common perceptions are, and what kind of word associations came up about the Middle East. And what I found was that more often than not, these associations were negative. People associated the Middle East with crisis, with terrorism, beheadings, instability, intolerance, restrictions for minorities and women. In 2004, I visited Iran for work. And before that, I'd been told repeatedly that I had to wear a shapeless overcoat, keep my head covered at all times. Ladies to say, I ignored the instruction about the shapeless overcoats. I mean, I'm a girl, I'm going to be vain. I wasn't going to use that. But I did wear the headscarf out of respect for the culture and the people in Iran. You know, we arrived in Tehran and I was really very surprised. It was like going to an old Southern European city. There was an air of vibrancy, it was, there was breeziness. The women were really beautiful. Headscarves barely covered their heads. Dresses were conservative, but not shapeless. And let me tell you, they all wore the most glamorous Jackie O style sunglasses. I was fascinated, okay? We went to restaurants. Uh, there were nights when we didn't have to, we didn't have any work-related din dinners. And so we went to restaurants. And you know, it was interesting for me because people just spoke easily, casually with one another across tables. It was so, it was just such an experience. And many of the misconceptions that I'd had before I actually went to Iran just got thrown out the window that, that one night when we went out for dinner and it was one of those dinners that wasn't official and we could do it on our own, okay? I fast forward to now my time at the Middle East Institute. And one of the things that I can say is that changes have 
and they continue to take place in the Middle East. That said, it is still very conservative, and there are indeed pockets of instability across the region. But the region is much more than just the crises that we read of every day. And more than the images of the somber dress that we associate with the Middle East, nobody tells you that those somber dresses are often topped by exquisitely made up and really very beautiful faces. And there is stability in much of the region, whether you consider Saudi Arabia, Iran, or Turkey. Economically, the Gulf in particular has been very, very successful. It has a, a young, educated, internet-savvy population. And the Gulf and much of the Middle East is as vulnerable to global upheavals as the rest of the world is. And they are trying to navigate the same uncertainty that the rest of us face. The region is changing in response to how the world is changing, whether or not the more conservative elements, and there are very conservative elements across every country in that part of the world. Even if these conservative elements don't want change to occur, it is occurring. And there are knock-on effects. There's much greater awareness of climate change and the impact it will have on one of the most arid regions in the world. There's a realization that they must diversify their economies away from an over-reliance on oil and gas. Those of you who study the Middle East will always hear this term, a rentier state. I think one of the things you realize in many of the Gulf states is they realize they need to move away from this model. How they will do it is another question, okay? The other thing that they have to deal with socially is that there's a great desire among their young people for more job opportunities and a greater openness that would allow them to voice their opinions just as they were they would like, and generally live lives without constraints. Let's talk a little bit about what the Middle East is. Geographically, I really think we should, and John Luke and I were talking about this early on, you really should talk about the Middle East as West Asia rather than the Middle East. If you know the history of the Middle East, you will know that that term was very much a British military term. Um, and it didn't do justice to that region. So I, I like to call, refer to it as West Asia, which is, I think, a much more accurate description. I can see my colleagues all nodding their heads because, you know, we've had this discussion many times about it. And it's because the region doesn't just include Arab states. There are also non-Arab states. You're talking about places like Iran and in Turkey. They have proud histories and they will tell you they're not Arab. You know? So I think West Asia as a term really takes a better account of, of what that whole region is about. At the Middle East Institute, we always look at the region in two tiers. We, call, we look at them as the northern tier and as the southern tier. And in the northern tier, we include Turkey, Iran, Iraq, Syria, Lebanon, Jordan, Israel, and North Africa. Now, as I said, Iran and Turkey, old civilizations. They're Muslim, they're not Arab. Iraq, Syria, and Lebanon, very honestly, are struggling states. Jordan is the one monarchy in this tier. And then there's Israel which for the most part is stable and economically successful. And yet, Israel is itself undergoing remarkable social changes. There are chasms opening between secular and ultra-Orthodox Israelis. If you go to Israel, we go to Tel Aviv and you go to Jerusalem, and they're completely different. You feel like you leave one planet and go to another planet. It's, it's quite amazing. And the people who live in each of these cities really very much reflect a lot of this growing divide between, within that is Israeli society. In the southern tier, we speak primarily of the Gulf states. These have been the, the very successful. For the most part, they are stable, and the exception is Yemen. Okay? But the Gulf states are also undergoing changes, and the most significant, in my view, is Saudi Arabia. The economic diversification that many of the Gulf states seek cannot come with some sort of social transformation and infrastructural changes. I, I, and I think that flux is to be expected. Okay, so the explanation I've given you of the tiers, it probably sounds a little bit simplistic, but it's an approach that has given us here at the Institute better insights into how the Middle East is evolving and the challenges that countries face domestically and regionally. Let's talk about why Singapore should care. For Singaporeans and for Singapore, we can't ignore the Middle East, nor should we ignore them. 
In a world that's so connected, we in Southeast Asia are impacted by the Middle East and in turn have an impact on them. And we should recognize that the Middle East is both different and yet in some ways similar to us in Southeast Asia. Family, faith, and a conservative value system make both our parts of the world quite similar. Across multi-ethnic and multi-religious Southeast Asia, the ties with the Middle East are old. Travelers from the Hadramaut in Yemen made the long journey across the Indian Ocean centuries ago, bringing with them religion, trade, culture, and learning. Along the way, they married with local women, raised families with them. If you want a sense of what that must have been like, um, I have a favorite book. It is written by an English scholar who lives in Yemen, Tim McIntosh Smith. And he wrote this marvelous book called Travels with the Tangerine. Um, it's very dense. It takes you a long time to read it, but he replicated the travels of Ibn Battuta, a, Mor a Moroccan scholar and explorer who traveled extensively in the 14th century and was said to have clocked more kilometers than either Admiral Zengha or Marco Polo. Here in Singapore, Arab Street is not called Arab Street for no reason. And there's this wonderful network of roads and little backways that bear names like Muscat Street, Baghdad Street, Bussorah Street. You really, if you have never been to Arab Street, you should really go and take a look. It is so interesting. Several old families in Singapore trace their roots back to the Hadramaut. Um, when we talked about this earlier on, I mean, Jean-Luc was a little surprised when he realized that in multi-ethnic Singapore, there was an Armenian community. There is a rather active Jewish community. They have been here since the 19th century. Um, you know, this is really a very diverse part of the world and it's really worth exploring some of that. Having said all that, for the longest time, Singapore's interest in the Middle East was very limited and we focused only a few countries. Egypt, because they had been one of the first to recognize Singapore's independence, and because they were in the 1960s, one of the leading lights of the non-aligned movement. As a fledgling state that no one expected to succeed, we needed all the support that we could master. The other interest country has been Saudi Arabia, primarily Jeddah, and this is because of Hajj and the Singapore Muslims who made the annual pilgrimages. Finally, there's Israel. I cannot talk about the countries that we've had ties with without mentioning Israel. It was Israel that helped us to build our defenses in the early days of our independence, and we continue to share close ties with them. Beyond defense, we have actually worked together with Israel in research and development and in startups. And both countries have quickly become known as startup giants. Uh, a compliment really that I think Singapore hugely appreciates because uh, really the Israelis have been the lead, the lead in this front. Let's jump forward to today. Singapore is represented in many countries in the Gulf and other parts of the Middle East. Then Prime Minister Goh Chok Tong started the process in the early 2000s of encouraging interest in and engagement with countries in the Middle East. Since then, ties have continued to grow and develop at the ground level. What has changed? For one, Singaporeans now know more about the Middle East and they are much more adventurous. You'll find Singaporeans working in Dubai, Abu Dhabi, and Doha. They study in Cairo, Jeddah, and Tel Aviv. Singaporeans are also much more aware of developments in the Middle East, whether it is the plight of the Palestinians, the Syrians, or the Iraqis, or the assertiveness of Turkey and Iran. And Singaporeans have opinions. Multi-religious Singapore has a Muslim community who make the annual pilgrimage to Jeddah and Saudi Arabia and stay on to visit other parts of the region if they can. Moreover, as the custodian of the holy places, Saudi Arabia is influential in how many view their faith and the practice of their faith. Singapore businesses continue to view the Gulf with interest and to look for opportunities to pitch a tent and establish lasting business partnerships. On their part, Middle East countries look to Singapore with interest. They have learned from our successes, use their resources well, and are keen competitors. In 2021, Hamad International Airport in Doha ranked the number one airport in the world, toppling Changi Airport's eight-year run as the world's number one. So when I was, when I was, I looked at this and I thought I wanted to talk about this again and I, I wanted to check, maybe we've dislodged them and we've got back our number one position. No such luck, okay? Uh, 
Hamad International Airport remains number one globally. And I can tell you that the Changi Airport Group will take note and there's going to be a comeback, right? Nowadays, when you hear of Singapore Airlines, people talk not just about Singapore Airlines, they talk about Qatar Airways and they talk about Emirates. They come up together as the best airlines in the world. And I can tell you that both Emirates and Qatar Airways are really competitive. They have learned from what we did and they have adapted. They took a leaf from our book. How do you think Changi Airport was developed? We went and looked at the best airports in the world, took the best that we found in these airports and made Changi Airport. And the Qataris and other Gulf states have learned from us and they're doing the same thing. The Gulf states are also focused on diversifying their economies away from an over-reliance on oil and gas. Okay, I know there's been a lot of talk about the Ukraine crisis and how this has given the Gulf states Opportunity. I would say that that crisis notwithstanding, I think the Gulf states recognize that the diversification is still necessary. So what you see now is that their sovereign wealth funds from the Gulf have been quietly setting up a presence in Singapore and they've been looking at investment opportunities. They are spreading their eggs and not keeping it all in one basket. Played well, this diversification effort and the Gulf's renewed focus on our region offer opportunities not just for them, but also for Singapore and for Southeast Asia. Now, this isn't to say that the region is an easy one to either understand or navigate. One of the things I learned over the years as I, I, I dealt with the Middle East was that the more I read up about them and the more I visited their countries and the more I talked to people, the more I realized how little I knew and how little I understood. You know, they're, they're just so different. They've also long been an arena of geopolitical jostling. And that region has seen the British and Americans compete when oil was first discovered, the former USSR and America competing for influence during the Cold War. And today what you see is a very potent mix. The US seeking to rebalance its role in the region, a more confident and assertive China seeking to make inroads in the Middle East, and a very visible Russian presence. Uh, Russian presence is not new. Russia has always been part of that region. But you see them much more visibly now. From Turkey and Iran in the northern tier to Saudi Arabia, the UAE and Qatar in the southern tier, the need and the timeline for necessary change is picking up pace. Having put their eggs in one basket for so long, they recognize the need for greater self-reliance and for a hedging of bets. And all this is very visible, whether it was the signing of the Abraham Accords in 2021 or the rolling out of very ambitious vision plans. Let me talk a little bit about China. China's presence in the Middle East has actually been written about extensively by many China observers. So I don't want to go too much into that beyond saying that you really need to watch what they're doing in the Middle East. Chinese interest in the Middle East is driven largely by economic opportunities, new sources as well as new markets. But it's also clear that a message is being sent, not just by the Chinese, but by many Gulf states themselves to the US. That said, China has made some huge economic strides, especially in the Gulf, and they could very well become a tough competitor for Singapore business interests. So should we care in Singapore about developments in the Middle East? Yes. In my view, we don't understand the Middle East as well as we think we do. But as Mr. Go Chok Tong observed in a 2007 interview prior to his second visit to Iran, we need to engage one another, we need to explore opportunities for cooperation, and we need to listen to each other's views. I think recent events over the last couple of years actually show us that in the age of globalization, things that happen far away will inevitably impact Singapore and Singaporeans. I think nowhere was this clearer than during the pandemic, and then more recently during the Ukraine crisis. And let's be honest, the Middle East isn't that far away. It is also much more closely intertwined with Asia, particularly Southeast Asia, than most of us realize. Now, I could talk for a very long time about the Middle East as so much has happened, and I've probably taken a very simple perspective on the region. But I want to just end here to make a pitch for our series uh, and open the floor to questions. I think most of you know today is a kickoff to our series, and we're going to run through to the middle of October. Uh, as Jean-Luc said, there are eight sessions in all, and we've tried to cover as many, as many subjects as we could. 
So through much of the series, the team actually looks at the geopolitical competition in the Middle East and they, the sessions consider dynamics within the region as well as the role of external parties with vested interests. Our last session in October will actually look at economics and social changes and there'll be a particular focus on climate change. Um, I think climate change is one of those subjects that we cannot ignore and we cannot deny. Um, you know, and our own Prime Minister here in Singapore has basically said that for Singapore, uh, climate change is very much an existential issue. It is a problem and it is existential. It's not something that is theoretical. It is really going to impact us. So therefore, I hope that you all will attend as many of these sessions as you can. Um, I hope I'll see many more people. I want to thank all of you who trekked all the way here today for coming. I hope I'll see you. I'll keep seeing you all over the eight weeks, you know, and uh, I also hope that, uh, you know, you get more of your friends and classmates and schoolmates to come and join us. Uh, the topics that are coming up in the following weeks are as interesting as they are varied. Uh, our speakers are really experts in the fields that they will speak on. But I want you all to come armed with questions and comments because we are always, always interested in listening to other perspectives. Okay, okay that's it. Let's take some questions. Thank you very much, Michelle. Uh, just uh, uh, an announcement on the, uh, the logistics, uh, because for, uh, uh, for those of you who are in the auditorium, uh, what we'll do is uh, we'll uh, uh, probably uh, share a microphone uh, if you'd like to ask a question and uh, if you could please introduce yourself. Uh, for those of you who are on Zoom, uh, we'll ask you to write your questions uh, in the chat box uh, to MEI event address. Uh, and then we will collect them and I will, uh, uh, I will uh, ask the questions uh, here uh, in the auditorium. Um, who would like uh, uh, to ask a question? I mean, uh, any question is uh, welcome. As uh, Michelle said, this is the introduction. Uh, if uh, you have a question related to uh, uh, Singapore's uh, history with the Middle East. Yeah, Lee Chen. states in the Middle East for Singapore that were quite important, um, especially in the beginning, uh, Egypt, uh, Saudi Arabia, as well as um, Israel, right? Um, obviously, I'm, I'm assuming Israel is still one of the linchpin states for Singapore. Um, are Saudi and Egypt also linchpin states, um, or has there been a switch or a change uh, in that order um, within the Middle East for linchpin states for Singapore? I would say... Um I mean, having been part of the team that, that uh, was involved in a lot of the visits that Go Tong, Mr. Go Chok Tong made to the Middle East, uh, there was a lot more interest in the Gulf states. Uh, I think because we saw that uh, they were parlaying the wealth that they had earned from oil and gas um, into a lot of infrastructure and uh, developing uh, other parts of their economy be beyond the oil and gas sector. So there was a lot of interest there. Uh, Israel, as you pointed out, remains uh, a close uh, uh, linchpin state for us. Saudi Arabia still, for two reasons. One, because of our being multi-ethnic, multi-religious. Uh, it remains an important country for our community, and so there are those ties. But also because Saudi Arabia itself has actually started to uh, look beyond uh, uh, its traditional sort of structures. Uh, I mean, you know, and the changes that are occurring there are actually quite dramatic. I, I, I know a lot of people think that it's too little and more could be done and it's not enough, you know, but it is in a really very conservative society. Um, uh, Egypt, you know, remains still uh, a player for us. Uh, one is the ties of history. Uh, I think that for, for the Singaporean leadership and even for the later generations of leaders, there is a recognition that in our early days when we first became independent, the support and recognition that we were given um, should never be forgotten. You know? And so there's always an appreciation for Egypt. But Egypt is also still important to us because a lot of 
um, uh, young Singapore Muslims who decide to undertake religious studies are inevitably drawn to Al-Azhar in Cairo. Uh, and so like Mois here and our religious teaching community and all that still have those ties. So Egypt still remains important to us, you know. Um, and, I, and I think with a country like Egypt, you, you can't ignore them. You know, they, they have existed for, for millennia. They're still going to continue. They're going through a lot of upheaval and flux. But I think that you never know when they're going to make that comeback, you know. Uh, so I'd say the additional sort of countries that we now look at are really the Gulf. And within the Gulf, I mean, the, the states that there's a lot of interest in is Saudi, the Emirates, um, and uh, Qatar. You know, uh, so... Um, that's really where we're at now, you know. But I think they're also not closed off. I mean, for we 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 do we've actually we're actually quite friendly with the Iranians, but you know there are obviously difficulties in actually doing more. Um, and and Turkey as is also a country that uh, we have actually viewed with quite a bit of interest. But for the longest time, I think Turkey uh, was very Euro focused, European focused. Uh, that has changed now, and I think that. Um, has also made greater interest. I mean, I uh, long after I left the foreign ministry, we set up um, an embassy in Ankara. I never thought that they would come. You know? And uh, I don't know whether there were a lot of people rushing to actually go to Turkey. I hope there were because it's such a beautiful country. You know? And Ankara is a government capital, but Istanbul is incredible. So you know, that tells you a lot about how Singapore uh, has started to view. And you know, when... Countries open up embassies, they do so very reluctantly. They're, in fact, rather stingy about when they open up representation. Because once you open up the official representation, you can't close it, not without causing ruptures in the relationship. You know, So I think it's a big step that they actually opened an embassy in Turkey. Thank you. Uh, any question or should I use my privilege while uh, people think about uh, questions. Uh, I'd be interested, uh, uh, because the, the purpose of this introduction, as you uh, pointed out, is to understand also the Singapore perspective. Uh, and as you said, the, uh, the countries, there are countries that are more relevant than others. And Israel, Gulf states clearly uh, are uh, of co countries of priority for uh, Singapore. I'd be interested. Uh, as a European to understand how Singapore looks at the ongoing uh, normalization between Israel and the Gulf states, uh, this so-called Abraham Accords. Uh, because the, in Europe, there's, there's a strong skepticism. Uh, a lot of people in Paris, in London would say that this is just a, a, a superficial agreement, that it's not really uh, binding uh, these countries. Uh, my assumption that in Singapore, there's a more positive perspective. But I'd be interested, uh, given your experience, uh, how does Singapore look at uh, this ongoing uh, rapprochement between Israel and Gulf states? Is it something that could be uh, useful, could be of interest for Singapore and more broadly for Southeast Asia? Well, I don't think that that normalization is necessarily a bad thing. Uh, I'm also of the view that the reality is that many of the Gulf states have had ties with Israel for a long time. It's just sort of flown under the radar, mm. you know. Uh, I think that for, for, for the Emirates, for example, which was the first one that actually did the, the UAE that did this, I think it's a very practical thing. Um, I think there's quite a large Jewish community that is in Dubai. They run businesses um, and they're very integral. The Israelis also are far ahead in the field of technology. I think if you want to diversify your economies, and you know, Saudi Arabia has got a very ambitious vision, uh, and they've set up this city called Neom, right? Now, if you want to set up an infrastructure like that, you need to have the technology as well. Where's that know-how going to come from, right? Uh, why don't you look within the region, for example? Of course, I know that they're a bit ambiguous. They've not said very much. They're ambivalent about their dealings with with Israel, and I can understand the caution, uh, but I think um, what the Emirates has done has actually been quite interesting because what they've done is they've basically uh, put a spotlight on a relationship that has always functioned anyway. They've always been the business, economic uh, uh, ties, you know. I'm quite certain there have been some 
ties at official level, but it's like, uh, it's official, but it's unofficial, if you know what I mean, you know. They, or they call it informal. Anytime you call anything informal means that they don't want it to be sort of given the sort of uh, profile that you would get if it was it was prof it was official and when you when you when you watch them i uh, you can see that this is happening and i suspect uh, at least no i know that from our perspective we think that it's not a bad thing i mean the reality is that israel exists it's not going to go anywhere you can't move it anywhere else uh, there have been many hard-fought battles, you know, there, there's a long history and much has been written about the different wars. But there are also some, I think, common, I don't, well, the more extreme call it the common enemies, but I, I like to think of the fact that there are the common challenges. There are some things that they do need to deal with. I mean, you're looking at some extreme non-state actors, you know, who have always threatened the Israel because they don't give, they don't recognize their right to exist. But now they are starting to become a problem for some of the Gulf states, you know. Uh, and the whole process of transformation and modernization means that the old and the new come up against one another, you know. And uh, the 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 religious ideas come up uh, work hand in hand with conservative ideas, and they come up with this need for modernization. It's not a desire to modernize. I think you need to modernize. You need to be more relevant because I can't remember who said this, but anything that happens in the Middle East affects everybody else in the rest of the globe. And it's so true, you know, and I think that uh, uh, thus for the Middle East itself, uh, you know, for the Gulf states, etc., there must be some kind of Un, whether it's an uneasy relationship, which, you know, there is some merit to the scepticism in Europe, <laughs> whether it's an uneasy relationship or it is one that is purely transactional, there must be some kind of relationship, you know. And I think that's a necessity. Thank you. We have actually, a, it's kind of a follow-up question from Fahima on uh, the Zoom uh, discussion. Uh, so let me read uh, uh, the uh, the context and the question. Singapore has had good relations with Israel for a very long time, but we never had an embassy. This year, during Minister Vivian's visit to the Middle East, it was announced that Singapore will open an embassy in Israel for the first time since diplomatic ties were established. Was this decision to open the embassy today influenced by the recent developments with the Arab countries, so uh, the, uh, the Abraham Accords, and if so, how and why has that uh, development enabled the decision to open an embassy? What are the factors that have prompted this uh, uh, decision? So that's the, the question uh, from Fahima uh, on the opening of the, the embassy uh, uh, in Israel, uh, the uh, Singapore embassy. Okay, thanks for that. Um, let me say a few things about that. One, uh, I left the foreign ministry about 10 years ago, so contrary to popular belief, I really am no longer part of the foreign ministry. <laughs> uh, I really don't know what the policy decision-making process was, but uh, being Singaporean, and we're all Singaporeans, uh, you know, in, in the ministry, and I'm a Singaporean, I think there's a very practical, there was probably a very practical perspective about it. I think the Abraham Accords opened a door whether it was partially open or fully open, the door opened. And it meant that instead of referring to the Israeli military as the Mexican army coming to help us, which is what happened when Israel first came to help us set up our military, okay? Those of us who are old enough to remember this, okay, now I'm giving away my age, but um, <laughs> you will know that that was what they were referred to, okay? It's rather fascinating. Now, you know, and the thing is, it's an open secret. We have a relationship with the Israelis. They come here, we visit them, you know, there's a lot of exchanges in terms of startups and investments. Israeli investors are interested in our part of the world. We are interested in them. It's about the technology. I think, um, and there are quite a number of Singaporeans who are actually in Israel. I mean, my nephew went to Tel Aviv as part of his exchange with the university. He chose Tel Aviv because he said he was interested in their startup, their startup culture, and uh, their reputation as a startup nation, and that was what intrigued him. You know, uh, so I think there's a recognition that uh, 
the Abraham Accords and perhaps some of the changing dynamic may give an opportunity for us to open up an embassy. I, if you notice, they said they would open an embassy. I don't think they said when they were going to open the embassy. Uh, so <laughs> it's a bit of a opt out. But you you need to have that, you know. And I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing. I, and I do I do suspect that the changes in the region uh, and the changing nature of the relationships among those countries um, has given us an uh, has opened the door for us to actually consider opening an embassy in. in Israel. Okay. So I think that's really what it, it's about. Yeah. This, uh, my. So, thanks for your sharing. And as you just mentioned, that there are some economic conflicts between Singapore and China. And economic conflicts between Singapore and China. Not conflicts, competition. Not com competitions. Um, can you know, like which area is it? Are there? And then what's Singapore's competitive advantage on that area? Well, um, what I talked about really was the was the potential. Of, I think one of the things that uh, for Singapore that we always have to be aware of is that uh, China has transformed and transformed very rapidly. Right? Uh, and the Chinese have started to look further afield. Um, they do need resources, they also look for new markets. Uh, they're smart, uh, they have people who are very educated, uh, you know, uh, people who speak Arabic, who have lived in that part of the world to understand. Uh, they're going to give us a run for our money. Um, and I think it's something that Singapore businesses or Singapore businessmen going into the Gulf also need to understand. That we are that we are there and we're trying to build a presence, but the Chinese are there as well. You know? um, and uh, they, they have, uh, they have uh, big ambitions and uh, a great willingness to, to uh, put down the roots, pitch the tent, as I, as I call it, you know, to, to make the investments that they need. You know? uh, and they bring with them um, you know, a lot of assets that we may not have as a much smaller country. I mean, we're very, very small compared to China, you know. So they are forced to, I, in my view, they are a force to be reckoned with. You need to watch what they're doing. There's a lot of talk about the BRI, etc. but I think I don't talk about that very much for the simple reason that it's been talked about to the death, you know. But what I look at is the Chinese businesses that go out into that part of the world. You know, they, they, they understand, they do their homework. They know what they're going into, they understand how things work there, and they have the patience and the time. And I think this is because China is such an old civilization. They have the time and the patience to wait, you know, until their interlocutors in those countries are ready to engage them. You know. And that's something that maybe we don't necessarily always have in Singapore, you know, as a much smaller country with much fewer resources, especially in terms of the manpower. So it's good to learn, and it's good to know that there's always competition. I think competition is not necessarily a bad thing. It makes us all even better than what we already are, you know. Thank you. I have a couple of questions uh, coming from Zoom. Uh, let me start with Saba, who's a student from Saudi Arabia, but currently at the Lee Kuan Yew School uh, mm. of Public Policy. Mm. And uh, Sela has a question uh, on uh, relations between uh, Saudi Arabia and Singapore and uh, uh, asking your opinion on the practical actions that could be done to strengthen uh, these relations, these bilateral relations between Saudi Arabia uh, and Singapore. Um, I assume this is not just in the diplomatic domain, this could be also in what kind of uh, economic cooperation there could be uh, between both countries. But the general question here is uh, the, your opinion on the ways to uh, strengthen this relation between both countries. I think at the political level, there is uh, a, a very decent relationship. Uh, you know, and the Saudis, of course, know that there is a Singapore community that, that that does go and attend the Hajj, etc. I've been told by, I think, a few months ago, we had an assistant minister who spoke uh, at one of our events. 
And he basically said that Singapore pilgrims who went to do to undertake the Hajj in uh, in Jeddah were actually really a very easy community to deal with, you know. So I thought that was good because you don't want to acquire a bad reputation for behaving badly in other people's countries. So that was one. Um, in terms of economics and business, I feel that there is a lot that can be done with Saudi Arabia. Uh, but I don't think we understand them enough, to be very honest, uh, and how they function. Uh, I also think that we get caught up in the sort of glitzy sort of plans that they have, which all sound you know, very modern and very 21st into the 22nd century kind of plans. Um, but we forget that at, at root they are they still remain a very much conservative society and and also they don't function in the same way that we do they're tribal okay i if you ask me how what does that mean i'll just tell you i don't understand how their thought processes work i don't understand you know how they how they they do things they move they get they they want to get things done etc one of the things i did learn very early on in dealing with the middle east is that time is very circular for them whereas for us it tends to be rather linear you move from A to B to C. They don't function like that. So that requires a lot of patience, you know. And I think in, in terms of dealing with Saudi, I, I really do feel that there's a lot of potential. Uh, and I think that our businesses do look at them. Uh, I know that uh, some of our companies like Sabana um, and then some of our port people have been looking at what they could potentially do with Saudi Arabia. Uh, but I think they've also all come to recognize that, that these things take time. You know, and that's the one thing that uh, I think we could all learn about a great deal more in Singapore, which is that you want to build a relationship with any of these countries in the Gulf. You have to be willing to put in the time. It does take time, and it does take a lot of patience. And Singaporeans are generally not the most patient. Uh, everything has to be done quick, quick. You know, and uh, I don't think it works like that when you deal with the Middle East, you know, particularly with the Gulf. So in answer to your question, Sabah, the answer is that there is huge potential. I think a lot of it will come through uh, the businesses, but I'm also aware that there are a lot of ties through people-to-people -people contacts. We don't document that enough in this country, but just hearing some of the anecdotal stories about what people do and all that, I think that there are lots of Singaporeans who go back and forth, not just for religious purposes to Saudi Arabia. They actually go there for work. Maybe they have family living there, people who have been there for a long time. You know, the amazing thing is that there are Singaporeans all over the world. You just, they pop up in all these unexpected places, you know, and you're just like, why would you do this? You know, how come you suddenly end up in this place? You know, so I mean, we, I think we're a lot more adventurous than we give ourselves credit for. So I hope that answers this question. Thank you very much. Uh, I have another question from Zoom, uh, this time from Georgi, uh, huh? visiting professor here at the Middle East Institute, and uh, it's a it's a it's a question. Uh, it's a typical question from a diplomat. So. Uh, uh, it, it, the question is, do you see any merit in a collective approach from ASEAN towards the Gulf Cooperation Council? Uh, so I assume that, and uh, I don't want to, uh, uh, to talk on behalf of Georgi, but I assume that the, the, the origin of the question is we, we look at the Gulf uh, as a very fragmented uh, region with a lot of different actors. So if we have a dialogue between two regional organizations, let's say ASEAN on one side and the GCC on the other side, would it be more effective? Uh, well, so, okay, so here's where I have to dig into my history and, uh, um, and then I realize that I'm really much older than I like to pretend <laughs> otherwise. Um, there are actually two platforms that ASEAN has. Uh, one is the Asia-Middle East Dialogue which ASEAN is actually part of. It's become very quiet. It's a bit moribund, actually. But we did start an Asia-Middle East dialogue, which included ASEAN as well as East Asia. So Japan, Korea, and China. Um, and the idea was to try to create some kind of, of bridge between our two regions in some kind of way and to create some kind of a dialogue. Uh, and it went quite well for a while. And then, you know, uh, Things occurred, different things happened, and then I've not heard much about IMED since then. 
ASEAN actually has a relationship with the Golf Cooperation Council. If I'm not wrong, there's, a, there's some kind of ASEAN GCC, and I can't remember this, but there is an ASEAN GCC agreement of some kind. I don't know whether it's for free trade or some kind of trade, but there is a relationship. So that does exist. But you know, the GCC's sort of function and purpose, if you look at its original, uh, the origins of its existence and its ethos, it's actually quite different from how ASEAN was set up and what ASEAN was set up for. If you look at the history of ASEAN, the idea of setting up ASEAN, the Association of Southeast Asian Nations, was to ensure that Southeast Asia became a much more peaceful and tranquil sort of region where up to that point, there had always been some kind of war, whether it was a civil war, an internecine war of some kind, or it was a battle between two countries, a war between two countries, or wars that involved outside players, Vietnam, for example, right? But we were not peaceful for the longest time. Our, our history as Southeast Asia is one of really uh, a region that has not been peaceful in that sense. And so ASEAN was set up really to try to ensure that we could focus, um, you know, instead of fighting one another, to understand that as a collective, we were much stronger. We had a bigger voice, you know. Uh, the reality of the Southeast Asian nations is that apart from perhaps Indonesia, everyone else is rather small. And so you have to shout very loudly and you've got to stand on huge soapboxes to get anybody to hear you. But as a collective, ASEAN has actually more of a voice. And while there is, a, there is a policy of not interfering in one another's domestic affairs, the, there is a whole complex network of ASEAN meetings that occur, and they cover a wide spectrum. And the GCC, I don't think, is as complicated as ASEAN is. And it's got a rather simple approach, right? Um, so is there potential? We already have that relationship. Can we do more with it? Yes, but I'm a sort of someone who's no longer part of the game. So I look at it and say, why can't you do more? And you know, the reality on the ground may be quite different. You know? But those mechanisms do exist. Uh, I think ASEAN as a collective has always tried to have these sort of relationships with similar regional groupings uh, in order so that collectively you could actually uh, uh, speak on issues where you would be paid attention to because it would be more than just one region talking about it. Uh, yes, go ahead. Mike's just there. So my name is Jacob. I'm an exchange student at NUS. And, and my question would be, um, because you mentioned some things uh, like Qatar and Emirates Airlines, um, uh, from that perspective, if that's an example where also maybe the Middle East could be like a competitor for Singapore in terms of Singapore Airlines, or for example, when you look at Dubai as like a safe haven for big companies, there's also like a competition going on between, between Singapore and the Middle East? Oh yeah, they're hugely competitors. Dubai looked at what we did and their ruler is a very clever man. He poached a lot of Singapore's uh, best uh, in terms of business, infrastructure, and hired them and made Dubai what it is, you know. Uh, where he takes Dubai now in the next, sort of, say, 50 years is another thing, right? Also, Dubai itself faces a much more assertive Abu Dhabi. So if you know the story, if you know the history of the, of the Emirates, you know that there's also some push and pull among the different states that together make the Emirates, right? Uh, they're they completely competitors to us, you know, completely. Uh, I am quite sure, you know, I mean, as a Singaporean, I'm rather peeved that we've lost our number one position as the best airport in the world. But I have to tell you that Qatar's airport is good. I flew into Doha, I was very impressed by the airport. They have learned everything they could from us and then taken it one step further. So they're giving us a run for our money. It's okay, I don't think it's a bad thing. Competition will make us even better. You know, but they are they are competitors. Qatar Airways, Emirates, the, they they learned from what SIA did, and they adapted. Now the difference is that they have much deeper pockets, so there's a lot more that they can do. But they learned some smart things like uh, making sure, for example, that their planes are always new planes. You know, they're not refurbished, recommissioned, etc. They're new planes. Uh, and at Singapore Airlines, there's something similar. And I don't know if that's changed now, but. You know, like I, because I hate flying, I absolutely hate flying. 
I really only fly at Singapore Airlines because I know the planes are new, you know. But I have actually travelled to the Middle East on Emirates and, and uh, Qatar Airways and they're, they're really very good airlines, you know. They have learned everything, you, you name it, they've learned it from us. So Singapore Airlines and Singapore Airport, Inter Changi Airport is just getting a huge run for its money, you know. But then again, we've done that to people too, right? I mean, at one stage, we were like the, the, the number one port in the world. We knocked Yokohama off its roots. And Yokohama had held that position for decades, you know. So I think that's the nature of, of global economics, you know. And, and we're so connected. And people have choices now, you know. Not all Singaporeans always fly SIA. Sometimes they prefer to fly the other airlines. I know a lot of people who fly, say, to London uh, using Emirates via Dubai because they say Dubai Airport is, is, is comfortable, you know, you and it's easy to, trans, to transfer. And you get into London and it's, you know, I mean, okay, Heathrow's another story, but, you know, you get into the airport and, and it's all very comfortable, you know, so why, why, why would I fly by, if I can't get the ticket on Singapore Airlines, okay, I fly by Emirates, you know, so there is that competition. They are competitive and it keeps our people on their toes, uh, but I think that's not a bad thing. Because at the end of the day, the rest of us benefit. <laughs> thank you. Hi, Aisha. Uh, so, <clears throat> thank you very much, Michelle, for uh, the informative presentation. Uh, I learned a lot about Singapore GCC relations. So, I'm still new here in Singapore. Um, so, you mentioned that uh, in Singapore, we don't uh, understand how the decision making is made uh, in the Gulf, especially, for example, in Saudi Arabia. Uh, my question is, uh, has Singapore done anything to help uh, in, you know, improving that understanding between Singapore and the GCC? And are there any, like, physical institutions where, you know, uh, Singapore and the Gulf could work uh, together and cooperate in more concrete way rather than just in an ad hoc basis? Because, you know, like, uh, we heard a lot about, like, you know, um, assigning a memorandum of understanding between Singapore and the Gulf. Uh, and then after that, we don't know what happened with that, mm -hmm. right? Uh, so my question is, like, are there any f uh, physical institutions between the Gulf and Singapore that could help improve the understanding and also help uh, uh, make the cooperation more concrete between the mm. two. Mm. So let me let me let me make a let me uh, make a pitch, uh, and also uh, uh, talk about uh, my former colleagues in the foreign ministry who are rep who have we have representation in say Dubai, Abu Dhabi, uh, in Riyadh. We are in Jeddah. Uh, we are in uh, Doha. I want to say that a lot of the understanding of how. Uh, of how our, our insights into the Gulf and how, and how things are done. A lot of this has come via uh, our representations in these countries because basically we pitched tents there and we took time and we spent time to build the relationships. I think that is the reality of uh, uh, the connectedness and trying to understand, you know. The other people that I want to actually flag are, is the Singapore Business Federation. They actually do a lot of work. They take groups of businessmen, and these businessmen mostly come from small, medium enterprises. You know, they take them to the Gulf states uh, to meet their interlocutors, and they actually run a lot of sessions to help them understand how to do business uh, and how it is very different doing business in the Middle East, say, vis-a-vis -vis doing business in Southeast Asia or even in East Asia. You know. East, doing business in East Asia and doing business in Southeast Asia can be a little different. And so similarly, the Singapore Business Federation does a lot in that front. And pre-COVID, they took a lot of people out to the Middle East, you know, to specific countries. Um, the third area that we do is, and this is through the Singapore government, they run a Singapore cooperation program that provides technical assistance to a number of countries. Now, look, the Gulf, don't, the Gulf states don't need this. But say places like Jordan and, you know, they would have looked at Lebanon, they would have looked at Iraq, you know, whether they, they, they could do this. Iraq's just unstable at the moment, uh, and so is Lebanon. But there's quite a lot of technical assistance provided, say, to Jordan. So there are lots of exchanges, they come here, you know, and I think we've seen some inroads there. So in terms of trying to understand how they, how they work, how they function, uh, there are these efforts that are made by, by people here, you know, I mean, it was always a, 
you know, I mean, I talked about the, the idea, the concept of time being circular. Um, you know, you just have to be very patient with them. You know, and that's why, like at MEI, we actually had this little. There's a little red book that we that we actually drew up. We talked to a lot of people who have had experience of doing business in, engaging in the Middle East, and we put in tips for people wanting to go to the Middle East. You know what you needed to do, and the one thing I always tell them is that it is really about pitching the tent. It's about taking the time, spending the time, investing that time to do it. You just have to have a lot of patience in dealing with with the with countries in the Middle East. I mean, I think there's just no two ways about it, you know. Um, and you know, the truth is that you could live three years in a place and not really know the place at all, you know. And I'll say very honestly, I mean, my overseas assignments were three three and a half years, right? Um, I understood some things about the countries I was posted in. I didn't probably completely understand everything because it takes a lot of time. You'd have to have to live there quite a long time to really understand it, you know. And it's like people who come to Singapore and after two or three years they go back and they think they ha they know some things about Singaporeans, but there are other things about Singapore and Singaporeans that they just find completely idiosyncratic and they will never understand, you know. So is it? I think that's just how it is. Uh, there's one question, I mean, I'll, uh, because we, we discussed uh, several countries. One that has not been uh, uh, discussed uh, so far is Iran. Uh, mm. I'm, I'm looking at Asif, who will be uh, one of our speakers. Uh, Asif is a senior research fellow here at the, the Institute and will be uh, one of the speakers in two weeks from now where we discuss Iran and Turkey. Uh, with the ongoing talks of, about the uh, Iranian nuclear program and uh, the prospects that these negotiations could actually fail. Uh, my question is, should Singapore care if Iran becomes a nuclear armed uh, power? Uh, we've talked about the pandemic, the invasion of uh, Ukraine, inflation going up, but we could have on the top of that, uh, I don't know if that's the cherry, but uh, an Iranian nuclear uh, crisis. For Singapore, do you see that as a as distant issue, which is uh, an issue for the Middle East, for the Western countries, uh, or it's something that could have direct consequences in your, in your view? I don't know if it would have direct, but you know, I mean, I, one of the things I said when I was talking was that um, that part of the world is much closer to us in Southeast Asia than you think. And one of the things I would say is that if it actually does become or it declares its hand and states that it is a nuclear power. Um, I think the concern for us would be what would it do in emboldening, say, countries in this part of the world? And what would that mean for us in this part of the world? And I think that would be where there would be a concern, right? Uh, at the same time, I think you can't stop countries from choosing a nuclear option if they know that they have to deal with that with states that are armed with nuclear weapons, they're going to tell you, I don't want to be exposed, right? I, I need to protect myself, therefore I need to have the arms. You know, in a way, it's sort of, it's not, it's not a virtuous cycle, it's a vicious cycle, you know? You, you set it up because you feel that you need to defend yourself against others, and then they in turn feel that they must therefore up their game, you know? And then it gets other countries around you thinking, if they, he has it and she has it, I need to get it as well. So I think that's, that's partly the problem. So if I look at what's going on in Iran, and if, they, if the, the talks fail, which is probably uh, not an uh, impossible prospect, um, I would say that I would look at it, and if I was, if I was in, a, in a government or a country here, my, my thing would be that, okay, they do that. Who is it going to embolden in our part of the world? What do I then need to prepare for in case someone becomes emboldened, you know. So that, that's the issue. Thank you very much. Uh, any uh, comment, any question, either from the uh, Asif? I'm a little greedy, so I would ask questions, not talk about Iran. Michelle, it's really fascinating to listen to your lectures. Uh, we always learn something new, which is not in the book. Uh, like today, you told us about uh, Egypt's role uh, in Singapore's, you know, uh, uh, building ears, new, uh, you know, beginning ears. Uh, that's something we don't find uh, in uh, general discourses. Normally, it's the Singapore and Israel relation that's been there, and that creates a different kind of perception, especially in the Muslim world. 
so uh, of course I'll be reading more about it, but grabbing on the moment, uh, could you please tell us more about how exactly was the role or what exactly was the role that Egypt played uh, in the formative year, especially because uh, Singapore's position as being sandwiched between two Muslim-majority Muslim you know, states, uh, Indonesia and Malaysia. Uh, thank you. Okay, so first I'll tell you that I'm not a Southeast Asia expert, but I will tell you what I do know. Um, in, when, we, when we were jettisoned from the Federation, the, uh, we had to quickly gain international recognition. In other words, what we had to look for was the right to exist, right? So we had to be recognized as a sovereign state. And we went to the non-aligned movement. And in those days, in the 60s and 70s, you know, the NAM was actually quite influential, right? Uh, and they drove the West insane, which was great. But Egypt was one of the first countries to give us international recognition. And I think our people have never forgotten that. You know? So whatever you say about Egypt and whatever a mess it might be, uh, there's a certain level of loyalty to that. It is similar to how we still are part of the Commonwealth and we still go for Commonwealth meetings on a regular basis. You know? People have always talked about how the Commonwealth should be, it should, it should ride out into the sunset and fade away, never to be seen again, you know what I mean? Uh, and yes, you know, it, it probably could do with a bit of transformation. But again, in the Commonwealth was where we gained a lot of recognition, you know. So we have ties to many African states as well uh, that were part of the Commonwealth who were among the first to recognize us as a sovereign state. I think you cannot underestimate the importance of that in 1965, you know, uh, how important that was to our existence. Yeah. People all talk about the ties with Israel, uh, you know, because it was so fundamental to us, to our being able to defend ourselves. Uh, but we have not forgotten, and I think if you, if you were to talk to, say, the current Prime Minister, Lee Sien Lo, right, he will remind you of this, you know, because these were the things that his father also felt were important. And if you read, if you read uh, Mr. Lee Kuan Yew's memoirs, you will see a lot of this information there. He talks about this, you know, the difficulties of what were we going to do as an independent state? Where were we, where were we going to head? Uh, how are we going to survive? You know, it wasn't even about are we going to do well. It was how are we going to survive? You know, without without being part of the Malayan Federation at that time. You know, so uh, and that's why I wanted. I always try to mention Egypt when I talk about the countries that, you know, for many older Singaporeans and, and those of us who are in the diplomatic line or uh, in the government line. You know, these were the countries that we will always remember. You know, I hope that answers your question, Asif. Thank you. I'll uh, check if we have uh, any final uh, uh, questions. Uh, it's more like a comment coming from Zoom uh, from Mahmoud, who uh, actually wanted to add uh, that uh, Singapore is apparently the fourth uh, largest uh, Asian uh, investor in Egypt. So he just wanted to uh, point that out. Um, uh, any final uh, remark or a question? Ah, sorry, uh, there's actually one uh, from uh, Berenike Metzler uh, on uh, Zoom. Uh, thank you for your interesting talk. Uh, are there currently any research projects uh, at the Institute which are investigating the religious or cultural relations of the Muslim community of Singapore with the Middle East uh, uh, and, or slash West Asia? Uh, and she add, or uh, and the person adds, greetings from Germany. Uh, <laughs> so more like a question on uh, uh, projects that deal with uh, this topic uh, at the institute. Well, we 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 have not looked so much at it, but uh, you might want to look at what the Rajaratnam School is doing at uh, NTU. I mean, not that I want to sort of profile RSIS. <laughs> Please don't tell my old boss down there, but um, I think RSIS does quite a bit on religious studies, but the other place that you would want to look at is also actually the Institute of Southeast Asia Studies. 
they, they look at the Muslim community across Southeast Asia and its ties vis-à-vis -vis the Middle East. So not just specifically Singapore. I mean, this is the, Southeast Asia is, is very, very diverse, you know, it is, and, and Islam is, is very prevalent across many of the countries, whether they're a majority or minority, but it exists, and I think that's where you want to look at it as well. I would completely understand the people in this room ran out of the energy to ask questions because it is so hot in here with the aircon not working. <laughs> Yeah, that, that is a detail that the people on Zoom probably don't uh, realize yeah. <laughs> that uh, uh, this is a hybrid uh, event uh, without any uh, air conditioner in the auditorium. So uh, I, uh, I believe uh, we're testing the resistance uh, of our audience and uh, I can promise that AC will come in coming weeks for the next uh, lectures. Yes, we feel, we're very sorry about that. <laughs> Uh, if there's no, uh, no more question, uh, uh, please join me for a round of applause for Michelle. Thank you very much. Thank you. And as Michelle said, this is uh, the introduction. We will have uh, eight uh, coming uh, lectures uh, that will uh, take place here. Uh, you're free, uh, you're more than welcome to join us either here uh, at the auditorium with the AC. Uh, or on Zoom, uh, the, the next one uh, that will uh, take place on Thursday next week uh, at uh, 4.30, uh, same place, uh, will uh, deal with uh, the Gulf states. We will start looking at regional actors. So uh, the coming two weeks will be first on Gulf states and then we'll look at Iran and Turkey. So next week uh, we'll have uh, Dr. Clemens Shea, uh, from the Institute uh, dealing with uh, Gulf states and their ongoing uh, strategic ambitions in the Middle East. So uh, you're more than welcome to come back uh, to the Institute. Thank you all. Thank you very much.